HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Estes Public Relations. For more information, visit estespr.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Arway. It's the day before Halloween, so a lot of people are all dressed up in their spooky costumes today. Um, not me today. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird weekend because Halloween is tomorrow and it's a Monday, so it's just all weekend long of Halloween. Um, however, I'm looking forward to a long weekend. It's already underway of cooking, and I'm really inspired by this new book, it is absolutely gorgeous. It's about Appalachian food culture and so much more. And um, the author, she's been a longtime food writer, and uh, she's actually been writing about Appalachian food and southern, uh, you know, southern food and also music for the last 30 years or so. Her latest book is called Vittles. It is Ronnie Lundy. How are you? I'm great. So nice to hear from you. Um, yes, and Halloween. Pretty yeah. exciting, right? Yeah, it's been just an epic long weekend of Halloweening. Uh, <laughs> I know, and it's hard when you look out to go, is this person in costume, or is that who they are all the time? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, uh, Ronnie, what are you, do you have any plans for Halloween, or do you try to cook anything spooky or appropriate? Um, I don't know, roadkill? I'm just kidding. <laughs> anything? Yeah, uh, well, that's an interesting question that you're mm-hmm. asking, because... Um, I'm I'm a part of of a new a sort of new Appalachian tradition that goes back to an older one here. I live in the mountains of North Carolina, Western North Carolina, mm-hmm. about forty minutes and several lifestyles outside of Asheville. And um, my daughter and son-in-law and my grandson live in a small community about twenty minutes from the town that I live in. And in that community, um, the children uh, there's there's a guy who has a hay wagon uh, who lives there. Um, it's on a tractor, not 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 mules, but um, all the children and their parents dress up. The kids ride in the hay wagon. They go around to about ten houses. People people say. 
uh, you know, if they're interested in, in distributing candy. And then we all go to a community center where we make various forms of chili and cornbread. Oh, and I always have to mark, I, 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 no, I always proudly mark my cornbread as being um, gluten-free and no sugar in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a big meal together. And then there's a long bridge over the Hannah Branch Creek before you go into the community. It's a, a beautiful old stone bridge with wide balustrades on either side. And so this weekend, the whole community has been carving pumpkins mm. um, into jack-o'-lanterns. And there are a lot of artists in the region. So after we all eat enough chili and cornbread to founder, we all go out and walk up and down the bridge and, oh, and look wow. at the artwork. Oh, that sounds yeah. so lovely. I bet those are going to be impressive, too, if that's such a long tradition. You'd think that they yeah. try to outdo themselves each year, so that's really cool. Yeah, Aww. it really is. And um, you mentioned the cornbread. Um, it's gluten-free. That's because it's simply the traditional method is cornmeal, which is no right. flour, right? So Right, yeah. right. Because it was a daily... It was a daily bread, you mm-hmm. know. It's it's kind of funny because in in my family and in a lot of Appalachian families uh, are people who had Appalachian roots of of my generation, mm-hmm. and I'm, I was born in 1949, and the previous generation. So your family your family referred to bread when your family said uh, bread. They meant, they meant corn cornbread. Bread. Oh, wow. I'm oh, sorry. Go when on. they meant store bread, they would say light bread. Ah, <laughs> light bread. That's very accurate. Well, I, I think that's really emblematic of, of, of sort of um, the pride in preserving the same foods and, and the same way it's made over time that um, you really explore in this book, which is really, it's really fascinating, actually, well, to me, because I'm I'm not from this area, so this is kind of exotic to me. Um, right. And it's really lovely that you kind of, took it upon yourself to explore all the food traditions of the region right now and uh, how they tie back to uh, history and the culture of the region. And um, uh, Ronnie, if you don't mind, I would love to read a little passage from the introduction because the writing is just so evocative and and lovely. Sure. All right. Sure. So you mentioned that um, you had moved to the city um, to work. So I'll start from there. Um, Like most who migrated in the many hillbilly diasporas brought up in the regional economic crashes of the 20th century, my parents continued to call Corbin up home and to take me there whenever they had the chance. My great aunts fostered those connections to riding up to Louisville on the L&N Railroad in the morning to take me back to spend a few days with them. We rode back in the evening, the train rolling through a velvet darkness that deepened as as the landscape edged closer in a in around the tracks, rose higher to the sky. When we got to the house where my great aunts lived, where my mother had grown up, I could see a multitude of stars pouring down from the hilltops. The very sound of the night was different, deeper, full of cricket and frog peeps, not car engines and the all-night factory clang outside of our apartment in Louisville. When the sound of the train passing by across the creek broke through the deep velvet, it was not a rude interruption, but a reminder that I was surrounded by love. So this is a sort of introduction to the place that you remember so fondly um, in the country, in the in the mountains, that is. So right. um, I love that, you know, talking about the Appalachian region, uh, you know, we, we are con- immediately conjured with a landscape because it denotes obviously a mountain range. And right. uh, but but you also note that we 
you know, in our culture, and you had learned this after you'd sort of grown up and moved out and gone to college and stuff that, you know, we tend to have these stereotypical opinions about this region and uh, right. a sort of caricature of hillbillies and so forth from television shows and whatnot. Um, so how did that, you know, how, what, is that what inspired you to more ex, like fully uh, uh, expose and uh, try to share the, the real culture? Yes. Uh, yes. And I, um, um, I, I realized that, um, I realized that I was, uh, fortunate to have grown up, uh, in a family that was very loving. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, um, I, you know, I grew up in the area, in the era, Mm -hmm. Um, where we discovered the term dysfunctional family, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I realized that my parents, um, by and large, operated the safe house for mm. my friends and many mm. people. And so I felt I felt really privileged that I grew up in the culture that I grew up in where there was such a strong sense of family and such um, love for children and love for place and continuance of place. And when I when I would talk about when I would tell people where I was from, um uh, it, it's funny because if you're from Kentucky, if you say you're from Kentucky and don't specify, you know, you get one of two um, two stereotypes. People either think you're a hillbilly and look down and say, oh, but you're wearing shoes. Uh-uh. Uh, did you date your cousin? Blah, ha, ha, ha. Or they think that you grew up on a horse farm, which is, mm. which is pretty, uh, you know, a, a whole other uh, stereotype. But I... I, I I just knew how different my life and experience was, and I knew from the stories that my family told. I, I talked about the fact that that you know I come from a culture of storytelling and uh, sitting around a table, and, and that's what happened as I was mm-hmm. growing up. We would sit around the table that my mother filled with this amazing food and my father and then my cousins and aunts and uncles and everybody would tell stories. But my father particularly was a wonderful narrator Mm -hmm. of uh, true stories of life. And I just, I knew that, that the reality was so different. And so I wanted to find ways to convey that. Mm-hmm. people and um, music became one of those ways and in the, in the late 1970s and early 1980s uh, when I first started writing um, professionally mm-hmm. um, uh, bluegrass music was going through this uh, surge of popularity and also a trans uh, a transition mm-hmm. as a lot of younger artists came in and started um, mining the territories uh, that it had always been connected to of jazz and rock and roll, but it was more out there and more obvious. And I got to write a lot about that. I got to, I got to explore other cultures and and understand my culture mm-hmm. in that way. I worked a lot with. Um, uh, younger uh, Cajun musicians who were in my age group who would talk to me about their 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 very similar experience and coming from a region of the country about which there were assumptions made and mm-hmm. and 
based on those assumptions, um, the region had been exploited and how they found in their music and that work a a voice. Um, And then um, I started to write about food and I discovered that that was even even more powerful because when we look at food waste uh, in America, uh, we start to hear the stories. We hear, we can see a history that has actually not been recorded. Um, the domestic history of yeah. the region and the history of people, um, Appalachians among them, as I mentioned, uh, the Cajun uh, culture and the Creole culture of Louisiana, um, um, black culture, um, uh, the contributions of African Americans. As you start to follow the threads back of, well, this is what we're eating here, that we don't eat somewhere else. Why are we eating it? What mm-hmm. are we doing? Then we then we get this fuller picture. And when you look in, in the short version for Appalachia is when you look at the processes of seed saving, the in-depth understanding of the land and the climate and how much sun you have and don't have and uh, where to plant because of that. When you look at the terrain that people had to work, which is often almost vertical Mm -hmm. um, uh, and filled with rocks, but also filled with tremendous uh, resources. You know, I talk about how we fenced in the homestead, but you allowed your pigs Mm -hmm. um, and other livestock to roam the forest because of all this incredible mast and food. And, um, you know, so there's a deep wisdom there. And there's also, there's also, uh, and then when you talk about how we put up food and, and had food to sustain us through the deep winters that, that differentiate southern Appalachian fruit from the rest of southern food, but it also indicates how hard people worked, Um, and it starts to bust apart these mythologies that that Appalachians are inherently lazy or that we're stupid or um, uh, that we are... that we don't know how and don't deserve to have our own land and take care of it. I mean, gosh, I mean, what better incentive, you know, to sort of reclaim uh, the the culture and re-embrace it than, you know, something like these stereotypes. And it seems that this is happening in food with chefs, too, now. So sort of... um, Paying homage to their roots, uh, literally, <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to the roots and branches. Um, yeah. yeah there's, and there's people like Travis Milton um, who has has received some very strong uh, attention, and we connected a couple of years ago and uh, had this kind of. Uh, emotional connection because he had told me that a book that I had written 25 years ago, Shuck Beans, Stack Cakes, and Honest Fried Chicken, Hmm. had been instrumental in returning him to his roots. Um, And Sean Brock and I had this same conversation. And then what they are doing, putting on the table, is like, this expression of everything that's wonderful about the food. And once you taste it, I mean, you know, that's the great thing about food as mm-hmm. 
a means of communication because it doesn't, you know, it's not just like writing that it's in your head, Mm -hmm. but you taste this and it it becomes a part of you. And, you know, one of the things I like to say, um, uh, Shelley Cooper, a young woman in Tennessee, is she's at Dancing Bear Lodge in, in the Smoky Mountains, and she's doing this work also based on her experiences with her uh, at her grandparents' home place in the mountains of North Carolina when she was growing up. And one of the things that we have talked about is that these these things have survived, like chuck beans is mm-hmm. this process of drying the whole green bean, the, the green pod and, and the beans in it. You, you sew them up on string and you hang them and you dry them and you eat them in, in winter. And that was a way to survive the winter. That was a source of deep protein in wow. the winter when you um, when you weren't able to hunt, you know, when you might not have, when you might be running low Snack. on the pig. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, um, and uh, fermenting corn and green beans along with cabbage, uh, which is another tradition of the Appalachian Mountains. These traditions have survived not just because they're interesting in an intellectual sense, but mm-hmm. they survive because they taste so mm-hmm. good. Right. They have just so much. Um, I call it Appalachian umami. But mm. it, it, it really is that. a distinguishing factor of the foods here that there is a, a deepness and a resonance um, in many of the emblematic foods. And they survived because we wanted to keep eating them. We didn't have to keep drying beans and mm-hmm. fermenting food and drying apples and making snack cakes oh, because that. that was all we had. It was because we loved it. And and now we're getting this opportunity to actually share that with other people. It's a very exciting time. And and not just only survive, but thrive and, and sort of be, yeah. as you show in this book, uh, reimagined in wonderful, uh, different, interesting juxtapositions. Um, I, I don't know. I think that in, we're seeing that with chefs, too. So I, I think that, yeah, it's it's really an exciting time that you've captured in this book. It's a, definitely like a sort of moving target or evolving cuisine, even as oh, we boy, speak, sure that is. you've captured. <laughs> yeah, at this wonderful sort of moment in time. Um, I want to talk more about some of the themes throughout Appalachian cooking, since uh, we're talking in such broad strokes, and uh, because you arrange the book in such um, interesting chapters. So, uh, but uh, first, we're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude, and we'll be right back. Chat more. Sure. Today's program was brought to you by Estes Public Relations. Navigating the world of media can be tough. Lucky for you, it's our specialty. At Estes Public Relations, we specialize in media relations and marketing for the culinary, spirits, and travel industries. Our clients, including award-winning chefs, four-star hotels, and artisanal food products and innovative beverage brands, have been featured in media outlets nationwide. Each member of our PR team brings a unique talent to our firm, from TV training, creative writing, and digital marketing, to recipe editing, graphic design, and spirits education. In a market crowded with competition, we can help your message stand out 
by connecting with our long-standing relationships with industry influencers and journalists at top print, TV, radio, and online outlets to tell your story. Where can Estes Public Relations take you? For more information, visit EstesPR.com. All right, we're back chatting with Ronnie Lundy, whose new book is called Vittles. Um, so, Ronnie, I see a lot of cookbooks come my way. And I got to say, Hi. I really commend your really interesting and thoughtful um, chapter breakdown. I'd love to hear what, what went into that, but I'm just going to share for a moment. Um, so the first section is roots and seeds, messing with greens and vegetables. And then there's salt of the earth, salty dogs, chili buns, and slaw dogs. Then the next section is all about corn and then beans, and then apple asia, so apples, then preserving, husbandry, and Appalachian spring. So so let's unpack that a little bit. So we got corn, beans, apples, um, animal husbandry. Are these like sort of the, the, how did you choose, like, are these like definitive or defining or prevailing um, yeah. categories? Um, I kind of I try to avoid the word definitive. <laughs> I know <laughs> because because I always feel like I am um, uh, uh, tapping into something, but certainly not exhausting it. But these were so I um, I initially um, I think when I first set out to write the proposal for this book, and I I should mention it took me six years. Um, mm. Wow. To, from, yeah. Right, because you did so much travel to explore these makers yeah. throughout. Well, I mean, it took me six years to find the publisher, uh, oh. no, to find the editor who who understood the book. Oh, my goodness. So, and and part of it, you know, part of it, a little bit of it was this unusual concept of right. the chapters. Right. You know, it was like, yeah. well, well uh, are we talking about specific foods? I'm sure, um, yeah, that that you know, was a daring move. Are we talking move. about cultural traits or whatever? But but um, when I hooked up with Francis Lamb at um, Clarkson Potter, who who is my editor and they are my publisher and have done such an extraordinary job with this book, um, he was willing he was willing to allow me to work a little bit outside of the framework. And, and what I wanted to do was to choose certain emblematic foods right. that that have something deep to say about the region. In other words, corn, you could talk about you can talk about corn in almost any part of the United States mm-hmm. and tap into the history. But in Appalachia, corn continues uh, and and not uh, Heritage corn and traditional corn and traditional cornbread continue to be um, defining aspects of the table, okay. even to this day. And so, um, uh, and then of course, corn liquor. Obviously, I you know don't have to say that 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 has been a defining part of the culture. But there, but there are so many aspects of um, moonshining and making mm. liquor that are not explored that talk about community and also about economy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there were these specific areas um, um, that, that had to do with Appalachian food in a way that they, or specific foods that right. had to do with Appalachian in a way they didn't do with other places. Um, our particular love for beans, uh, Southerners love beans and field peas in a way that the rest of the United States does not. 
and we have mm-hmm. such a diversity uh, here. But in the Appalachians, it almost becomes spiritual. It becomes mm-hmm. almost religious. And so, so those were subjects, but I also wanted to talk about processes. Yes. Um, I, I wanted to talk about things like the preservation of foods and right. I mentioned um, when you look at when you look at the Appalachian larder in broad terms the corn the beans the vegetables from the garden pork as the centerpiece of meat and also as a seasoning um, you realize that you're looking at the southern spectrum there mm. um, but when you look closer at Appalachia, you discover that because of our latitude, our altitude, and the severity of our topography, and by that what I mean is that um, we're not only high up and we're not only uh, in a colder region than the deeper south, but we get less sunlight Mm. on our planting areas. Our planting areas are smaller and we get less sunlight. So we have shorter growing seasons. We we tend not to have the multiple growing seasons that you have in the south, Mm. in the deeper south. And so um, winter became a major part of our vocabulary. Mm. Uh, The storage of food, the preservation of foods and certain specific foods. Um, that chapter on Appalachia, um, you can grow apples farther in the south, but ap- really great apples require a crisping of yeah. cold weather. Yeah. And uh, we we live in a region, there were somewhere between 1,000 to 1,600 varieties of apples here. Wow. Um, some for eating, um, many of them for making cider, and apples were a major um, cash crop for mm-hmm. Appalachian farmers um, mm-hmm. as well, um, as as was meat, uh, as mm-hmm. as were certain foods, because um, in in the antebellum south, uh, south, and you know, while there was still the plantation south, plantation owners did not want to turn over any of their valuable cash crop land to grazing. Okay. Cattle or pigs or, uh, or, and they couldn't raise apples, et cetera. So they would buy from, from the Appalachian South. That's why we have the Drover's Road going right through the Appalachian South, connecting Kentucky and Tennessee and, um, hmm. uh, North Carolina to South Carolina and deeper into the South where, where meat came down. Wow. So I and I love how, um, you know, the chapter, it's not called meats and poultry, but it's called husbandry. So you really take us through the the past and the present of animal production and uh, sometimes coexisting, you know, at the very same same time and place um, with backyard, um, you know, uh, keeping hogs, for instance, and um, small producers as well, which um, are still very much thriving in the region. And um, it's it's just a great section, and uh, I, I think that each one you I should point out um, you highlight certain different uh, makers and producers. So that's a really great sort of uh, moment in time, a snapshot of who yeah. who's moving and shaking in this scene. So. You know, there's. If I can interrupt for a second, Mm -hmm. there's a literal snapshot. In that particular chapter, um, there's a couple that I talk about toward the end, Diane and Jim Johnson, who who have Cloudcrest Farm in Rossville, Georgia. And I spent a day with them, and it was just 
such a beautiful experience spending a day with them and their animals. And, and I mean, they are, yes, they're raising animals for slaughter. They're, uh, they're connected to a small butcher shop in Chattanooga, Main Street Meats, and that is where their, their critters go. But their relationship with the animals was just so, um, so respectful yeah. and mutual and compassionate. I, I know that's probably an odd word for people to hear. And I wanted to try to capture that um, um, in writing the story. But what I was most thrilled about was that when Johnny Autry, um, the photographer who does these amazing photos in this book, and his wife, Charlotte Autry, is the food stylist, Mm -hmm. and I feel so fortunate to have connected to them. But Johnny went down and took photos at Jim and Diane's at Cloudcrest, and um, there's this beautiful photo that opens that chapter, and it's just of the back oh, of, the, a, of the a hog yeah. with Jim's hand on it. It's so and cute. I think that photo tells everything I wanted to tell yeah. about the yeah. difference between small-scale, um, mutually mutually connected husbandry as opposed to the kind of giant industrial production of meat that, that this this pig just for those who can't see it really it just it strikes me the photo strikes me as like this is a pet that's just like the first uh thought i had in my head he's uh enjoying a little shower he he looks very content And, right. and like for <laughs> yeah, you know, glancing through it, I thought it was a dog off. for a second. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's and, just, and mm-hmm. I mean, there's a practicality. Uh, you know, both Jim and Diane have a practicality about what they're doing too. You know, it's kind of mm-hmm. um, it. it yeah. it's, it, it struck me deeply that that you know we we have the luxury um, in our contemporary society. We also have a luxury of choosing what foods we will eat, not just out of their availability and our taste, but also uh, you know to fulfill certain ethical ideas that we have. And that was not a part of the pioneer experience. That's not a Uh, part of, of, and to some extent, it's not a part of sustainable experience. When you really look at, at how, uh, you know, the, the complex systems of a small scale farm, animals, animals play a part in it and they're not pets, but they are deeply respected for yes. what they bring to that to that story, and that was part of what I what I experienced with Jim and Diane. And it's a wonderful, uh, really, an article. I mean, and this whole book—that's what makes this whole book so special—is that you weave together several different current day, you know, well researched pieces of journalism um, to create this tapestry that tells a whole a, b- a bigger story. Um, perhaps yeah. not the whole story. Maybe we'll we'll hear more from you t- yet to come. Hopefully. Um, Apart from other people too, there are right. there are some wonderful mm-hmm. people working in this region. Um, I was my daughter, who's um, in her thirties and and so has observed my whole career. Said two things when she was when the page proofs came in and they mm-hmm. were black and white. Yeah. Um, she the first thing she said flipping through is, "I can't believe how Charlotte Autry makes such simple food look so Ooh. incredibly beautiful." And then the second thing she said was, "I can't believe how much they let you write." <laughs> oh yes, that's what I gotta have to say also. And I know that uh, you mentioned you're a fan of the the National Geographic cookbooks and and sort of 
wanted to yeah, yeah do something more life. like that. Yeah, yeah. the Time Life series. The, yes. Right. Sorry, sorry. The Time Life series, which is uh, one of my favorites as well. So it, I definitely can yeah. see that throughout. Um, and it's hard to do that this, these days. So well done. Yeah. Good, uh, yeah. good job fighting whatever powers that be <laughs> yes, in yes. order to do well, that. Yeah, I, I'm again. I'm very grateful because mm-hmm. I part of that six year process of having a proposal out there yeah. was also finding people who were inter- interested but didn't grasp the idea. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, mm-hmm. one of the ways I illustrate that was uh, an editor that I had a conversation with who I really liked, and, and we were, you know, having a great conversation until she asked me if we could drop Appalachia from the subtitle because of the connotations with poverty, and I just thought, yeah, we're not getting this basically yeah. here, you know, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, we're this because we can't not oh, tell yeah. the whole story. You can't, um, and um, the designer for the book, you know, there's oh. always this process where mm-hmm. you send in your pictures and your designer uh, can come back and say, uh, oh, no, can can we have more gingham, uh, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. And we were holding our breath. And Stephanie Huntwork, who was the designer for the book, wrote back and said, I'm so grateful how in, in both text and pictures you understand mm. the importance of shadow in telling the oh, story of the Appalachians. Right. And then she said she was from West Virginia. And so, yeah, I, I don't it's, know who the powers of the are that got this book well, in the right hands, but boy, did it ever. <laughs> absolutely. And so congratulations. Um, I can't Thank wait you. to share this with more folks. It's really much, much more than a cookbook. But if I must leave on one note, though, to anyone who is a little hungry, there's one recipe that I'm totally going to make very soon. Roasted root vegetable salad with bacon and orange sorghum vinegar. It just looks so oh, beautiful. Yeah. Perfect for fall. Oh, my God. It's so delicious, Let's too. do this now. <laughs> <laughs> make, make a good I will. of cornbread to go with, okay? I will try, and I'll try to share <laughs> on Instagram and tag you. All right. All right. Well, thank, thank you. you so much, Ronnie. It was wonderful having you. Well, thank and you. This was a wonderful interview. I really appreciated your questions. Absolutely. All right. And thanks, everyone, at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Oh, I like the way you do. Whoa, the way you took it so slow. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 